the Blinks Labs headquarters in Berlin, Germany, this is the Blinkist Podcast. I'm the producer, Ben, and if I sound a little jazzed, it's because I just finished speaking with Ariana Huffington about her new book, The Sleep Revolution, and much more. Um, Ariana Huffington is the editor-in-chief of the Huffington Post, but she's got a long political columnist and commentator career. She ran for governor of California at one point. She's really a, a leader of content in the world and also one of the most powerful women in the world, I would say. I'm really excited to get this podcast out to you guys, especially on the back of our David Allen interview last week, which if you haven't heard, um, I don't know what's wrong with you. Just go find it. It's at our SoundCloud page. So yeah, we're really excited to bring you all these interviews. We're trying to go beyond the books, dig into the heads of you know the inspiring and genius people who write them. So in this interview, you'll hear Ariana Huffington and I go into death, anxiety, stress, Nah, that's a little bit too depressing. Although we do touch on that, but we talk about her alarm clock and what's keeping her up at night and her sleep ritual and how sleep should be the forefront of every organization's policies. We talk about my girlfriend for like 10 seconds, uh, not too long, I promise. So anyway, that's enough of an intro. Let's just go straight into this. I'm really excited. Here's me and Ariana Huffington. Enjoy. This is Ben from uh, Berlin, Germany. Yes, how are you, Ben? Good. This is really, really cool that, that we could make this happen. Thanks so much oh, for doing this. I'm excited. I love what you're doing with Blinkit. Cool. So we have like 20 minutes, and we're doing a edition of our of our new Blinkist magazine on sleep, which Great. is obviously in your wheelhouse. Fantastic. Um, to start, I wanted to tell you this little story because this thing that you've done, it's pretty strong. I was reading your book this weekend, and um, you have this quote, each night, the sleep train would pass through my life headed for the sleep gate, and I would do whatever I could to make sure I wasn't on it. Yes. And so last night, I was pretty exhausted, and I knew I was going to be talking to you today, and I you know, I wanted to make sure I had a good night's sleep. So my girlfriend's kind of messing around, brushing her teeth, doing whatever, and I was like, Lily, hurry up and get into bed before my, tr- my sleep train <laughs> ended oh up telling God. her. Oh, my God. Ended up going into this long thing about sleep-wake homeostasis, a primary sleepiness zone, the sleep gate, all Oh, my this God, stuff. I love that. This is fun. That makes me feel so good because the sleep gate and catching the midnight train, as I call it, is a, it's a very important part of my life and my transition. So I'm glad to hear that it's become part of yours, too. And maybe, you know what, if you want to write about it, we're trying to collect at HuffPost, and we can publish it in German too, stories from people and how they're making changes in their lives. Because when people read it, it helps them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great idea. So can you take us through the journey of, of kind of how you got to here? Yes. So it starts in 2007 because that's when I collapsed from sleep deprivation and burnout. And, and that was sort of my wake-up call to realize that the way I was living my life um, buying into the collective delusion that burnout is the way to succeed was not sustainable and uh, was actually undermining both my health and my productivity and actually my happiness. So that's when I started reading a lot about the latest scientific findings on sleep and burnout and beginning to change my life. And writing First Thrive, my book about redefining success, and then The Sleep Revolution, delving into all the ways in which through the Industrial Revolution, we started devaluing and scorning sleep and how all the latest science makes it so clear that actually sleep is not negotiable. 
It's um, one of the three pillars of our health. It's actually the first pillar followed by nutrition and exercise. And without sleep, it's like trying to have a good life on a two-legged stool. Sooner or later, you fall (laughs) off. That's great. Yeah, so like, I mean, I've read Thrive. We all like it in the office. But there's something about the sleep book that really feels like some things inside of you is like driving, like this is so important, almost like you're afraid we're going to destroy ourselves or something. (laughs) Yes, actually, I do feel that way in the sense that there is a lot of suffering in the world. And there is a lot of suffering that we cannot immediately do anything about. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this is suffering that we actually bring on ourselves. It's self-inflicted. And I use the word suffering deliberately because it has such a profound effect on our health. It literally affects every aspect of our health from obesity and diabetes to cancer and heart disease and Alzheimer's. And I've explored all that in the science chapter because I want people to really change their minds about the importance of sleep profoundly, not just pay lip service. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I get enough sleep, I feel better. But actually recognizing the damage they're doing to our health, both immediately. We all know anecdotally that when we are run down and haven't slept, we're more likely to catch a cold Mm -hmm. or um, we are more likely to overeat. But now we have the science that shows that actually when we are sleep deprived, all these hormones are activated that actually make us crave all the wrong things like bad carbs and sugars. And it's kind of ironic that often there are people who get up super early to to go to the gym. And one of their goals is to lose or maintain their weight. And they're surprised that, in fact, they're overeating during the day to try and power through and uh, deal with their sleep deprivation. But so this is kind of the obvious stuff that we can all recognize from our lives. But then people really haven't known until very recently the connection between sleep deprivation and Alzheimer's, how it was, it is actually during sleep that There is this frenetic activity in the brain of cleaning up all the toxic waste that has accumulated throughout the day. And if we don't give our brains the opportunity to do that, all this toxic waste accumulates. And that's uh, the buildup that leads to Alzheimer's. Right. You know, there's this idea that, a wrong idea, that when we sleep, nothing is happening, right? That that sleep is wasted time somehow. Exactly. But in Chinese medicine, for example, they've known for thousands of years that it's as important as eating, it's nourishment. But how do, so how do you convince people? Like, how do you battle this kind of short-termism? I can imagine a startup founder saying, if I get four hours of sleep for two years, but get that funding, then I'll be rich and then I can sleep. Like, how do you make that argument to people, you know, against the short-term thinking? I think that's why I'm saying it's so essential that people read the science and understand the science first. Because if they are not absolutely convinced of how imperative and non-negotiable sleep is, it's going to be much harder for them to change any of the habits I suggest we need to change in the book. So the first step is to recognize that it's not only their health that is impaired, but their productivity and creativity and decision-making, which are, of course, absolutely essential for good founder decisions. You know, okay, let's say I don't care about my health, I'll pay the price uh, short term to build my company. But all the evidence shows that the prefrontal cortex, where where a lot of this executive functioning and decision-making is housed, is dramatically degraded 
when we are sleep deprived. And the fact that three quarters of startups fail should actually be a warning that maybe if we got enough sleep and made better decisions, we would have a better, better results with our startups. Right. To me, this is such a money quote from your book. A CEO who's bragging about getting only four hours of sleep a night is essentially saying that he or she is making decisions while drunk. Yeah, I just Instagrammed that today. So good. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. But so like, what happens if like a congressman or woman were to ask you like, hey, Ariana, I really want to bring this up, you know, on the Senate floor. Like, how do you how would you craft that proposal? Or even if a CEO were to say, hey, let's make this reality. Let's give this to our HR department. What are the steps that these big organizations should take? Well, these are sort of two very different aspects of what we're talking about. One is policies, which can include uh, um, family leave for the times when you give birth or you have a sick member in your family, and that's incredibly important. A living wage is incredibly important because, of course, financial problems keep people up at night. Um, so there's a lot that, that needs to be done at the policy level. Uh, but my new uh, company, Thrive Global, is focusing at what can be done at the corporate level. Uh, because the question is, how do you go into workplaces and change the culture so that uh, self-care and uh, getting enough sleep, having um, breaks for renewal, taking real vacations, establishing a sustainable relationship to technology and our devices are primary in the way we handle the business. And then what happens when we do that is that we realize that it's not just the employees who are healthier, more productive, and happier, but the bottom line of the company is affected. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of evidence to prove that. Mark Bertolini, the CEO of Aetna, one of the largest um, healthcare companies in the world, for example, introduced a lot of wellness programs into Aetna and uh, brought Duke University to track the impact in the first year. And they found 7% reduction in healthcare costs and 62 minutes a week improvement in productivity. So I think what is key here is to measure the result and the impact because that's when it's more likely to take programs like that out of the HR department and actually into the CFO department because they affect the company's bottom line. And increasingly, a lot of companies have problems recruiting and retaining the best and most creative millennials Mm -hmm. because they begin to have very different values in uh, how they want to lead their lives. And so one of the incentives for companies to introduce changes in the workplace is recruiting talent. Yeah. Cool. So that's the stuff I like about the top-down approach. But from the bottom up or like individual approach, what about stuff like basic things like that our my listeners can use in their daily life? The book is absolutely full of them, and I would definitely recommend that people go out and get it. Um, but I'm curious about a couple little things like um, like alarm clocks. Do you like alarm clocks? <laughs> What's your alarm clock situation? Well, um, first of all, I, I don't like alarms. I think that the natural way of waking up um, is incredibly important because just think of the word alarm. What does it mean? Right. It means that something isn't right. It means that we wake up in a fight or flight mode with a cortisol stress hormone flooding our bodies. So I have an analog, old-fashioned <laughs> alarm 
so that if I want to put an alarm on because I want to be sure that um, if something happens and I don't wake up, which actually has not happened because the truth is that we can overeat, but we cannot oversleep unless we have a severe depression or we are narcoleptic. But I think it's always good not to have to worry about it, that there will be an alarm there to wake you up if for some reason you oversleep. But it has never happened to me when I've allowed myself to get eight hours sleep, which is my my optimal number. But the reason for not having your smartphone as an alarm is because my one absolute rule in the second part of the book where I talk about tips and techniques and best practices is not to charge your smartphone (laughs) by your bed. Because that's when if you wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason and don't fall right back to sleep with the best intentions in the world, you are going to be tempted to look at your phone, to look at your data, your um, social media, your emails and texts. And that's the worst thing you can do if you want to go back to sleep and really have a night that restores and renews you uh, before you start your day again. Yeah. So what's, what's keeping you up at night nowadays? Oh, I'm very good at not having anything keep me up at night. Really? Nothing? Uh, the, um, the only thing that worries me, but it's mostly during the day, is my children. <laughs> um, I, I do have these negative fantasies if I text one of my daughters and I don't get a response within three seconds. Um, <laughs> but I'm working on it. I know it's an irrational fantasy. Um, but I'm very good about a demarcation line between my day and my night. You know, every day has obstacles, challenges, problems. But I have a kind of sacred ritual that allows me to transition to my time for sleep and put the day behind. It's like the day is done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, taking my phones out of my bedroom is the first step. Having a hot bath that slows down my brain. Wearing dedicated sleep clothes rather than the clothes I used to go to the gym in, which is what I used to do. Reading real books that have nothing to do with work, you know, poetry or philosophy or novels. All those things help kind of slow down the brain and allow me to transition to another modality. Hmm. And you really do that every night? 30 minutes before I turn off the lights. Because you know why? I love the way I feel when I wake up fully recharged. And I actually cannot stand myself Hmm. when I wake up exhausted. I don't like the kind of person I am. I don't want to be around me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more irritable, more cranky. <laughs> I get more upset about little things. So it's totally, totally worth it. I mean, my experience is like once you have a taste of it, why like why would you go back? You know, like once you have a couple exactly. of nights in a row, like the, that's the whole argument. I mean, oh, I love that. You know. uh, this is a great point. Once you have, once you taste it, why would you go back? Yeah, I mean, that's beautiful. You have to write about it. <laughs> All right, last question. It's morbid, but the role that death plays sometimes in your books. Yes. And um, one thing you said in Thrive was this idea of the eulogy. I'm really curious about how you would think your your sort of personal eulogy would have changed since 2007. Yes, well, I feel it's so important, actually, to bring death into our lives. I don't think that's morbid. I think it's what every philosopher has advocated. You know, Socrates used to say, practice death daily. The Romans used to carve M.M., Memento Mori, remember death on statues and trees, not because of of being morbid, but because when we remember that we are all going to die, that as the Onion headline puts it, 
the death rate holds steady at 100%, it <laughs> makes it much more likely that we're not going to be up at night worrying about things because everything is put in perspective. Right. And this connects back to this idea of we are more than our resumes, you know? Exactly. If we think that's all we are, then it must be a terrifying way to live our lives because we know for sure that our resume is going to die with us. Mm. We know for sure our personality is going to die with us. So whatever remains, if you believe, as I do, that the soul remains, has nothing to do with our resume. And um, and that's why I think, for me, it's kind of wonderful to bring death into our lives. It It makes every moment much more joyful. It makes it easier to feel gratitude for our lives and and for all the people we love and all the things we love in our lives and to keep remembering that it will all come to an end <laughs> and we have no idea when. Totally. So you must feel you must feel a certain amount of pride. And like I said at the beginning, I, I really feel that you really care about this and helping people. You must feel good about getting this message out there. I care very much about this. I, I care very much about bringing it to young people particularly because I feel that my generation has given uh, millennials, you know, just completely the wrong message about sleep and burnout. And it's our job to help uh, correct that. And that's why we did a great Sleep Revolution College too. Hmm. We've reached 350 colleges uh, we reached thousands of students, and it's been amazing to see what they've been writing about how their lives um, are changed. And again, it's that unnecessary suffering that we talked about at the beginning. There is an epidemic uh, of mental health problems in colleges, you know, of depression, anxiety, and all the science shows us that when you scratch the surface underneath depression and anxiety, in 80 to 90% of cases is sleep deprivation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, that's 20 minutes. I really, really appreciate this. And um, Thank you so much. I loved our conversation. I look forward to staying in touch and to have you write about your insights, totally. which will help a lot of other people. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, and think of us on your next book. Oh, absolutely. Cool. All right, have a nice Thank day. Thank you. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Today's Blinkist podcast was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Ben Jackson, who's standing in for Odie currently on vacation inside a hot air balloon somewhere over the Czech Republic. Hi, Odie. If you're looking for more Blinkist interviews, check out our page on iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, I have to give another plug for the David Allen interview from last week. Caitlin and him talked about some really good stuff, why productivity is a bit overrated, how you know when you've mastered his getting things done system, even things like martial arts. So seriously, look it up. It's on our SoundCloud page at the top. And if you like what you heard here today, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating on our iTunes page. Subscribe and tell people about it. That would be really, really nice. Either way, email me and the rest of the team here at podcast at Blinkist.com. If there's someone you want to hear on here, topics you want to see us cover, we'd love to hear from you. You should also visit Blinkist.com slash magazine to find more great stuff in our third magazine issue. This one's on sleep, and there you can also find a transcript of this interview with Ariana Huffington. About that magazine, the book doctor, the famous book doctor, has room in her schedule for new queries, unlike here in Berlin, where you have to wait months sometimes to see a specialist. So if you have any ailment or situation that you think the book doctor can solve via our collection of more than a thousand nonfiction books, 
write us. You can actually just email me about it, podcast at blinkist.com. All right, then. That's enough of that. Hope you guys enjoyed it, and uh, see you soon. Bye.